Welcome back to another episode of How to Play the Game, a brand new podcast that was created by yours truly, Darren Heitner. And if you want to follow me, you can always do so on social media at Darren Heitner. Today, I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, colleague, and extremely experienced lawyer, Greg Clifton. He is a principal at Jackson Lewis in Arizona. We have known each other for many years, going up against each other in litigation, referring each other business, and just being colleagues in a very small world of sports law within the realm of sports business. Today, Greg and I talk about many different topics, including why he decided to go from being an agent to being a full-time lawyer, how he sees coronavirus continuing to affect the business of sports, including salary arbitration, which he has a lot of experience covering. And we even go into talking about college sports and the name, image, and likeness issue. In fact, he gives us a little idea as to what he sees the NCAA doing in the near future. Darren, thanks for having me. I look forward to having a conversation with you, and thanks for that kind introduction. So, look, it's impossible to have any conversation surrounding the business of sports right now without addressing the fact that coronavirus has really caused a sincere impact on the industry as a whole. Um, Give me at least a a broad overview of what you're seeing in your practice uh, with regard to how coronavirus is affecting sports like related clients and if if you can predict the future what do you see in 2020 well you know Darren it's been interesting as as we've sort of watched this develop over the last essentially month to five weeks it's gone from I think an initial oh this will just be a blip and we'll get back to normal you know I think even Adam Silver who is obviously one of the brightest commissioners in all of sports had sort of predicted I think in his mind at least initially when he spoke about postponing the season for a period of time, a resumption of the season on a go-forward basis. And now, unfortunately, what I think people thought was going to potentially be a two- or three-week issue, extending beyond two or three weeks. So now the conversation has shifted more from uh, delaying the NBA season, for example, to do we possibly resume that season, and how do we resume it, and how late do we go? And of course, with all these delays and cancellations, and, you know, you look at Major League Baseball as well right now, trying to figure out some ways now talking about potentially the use of three different cities to get the ball rolling a little bit. Um, the financial impact is what's going to be drastic. You know, right now, any of the returns, and, and you're looking at the PGA leading the way right now with some June dates being announced, all of them are without attendees or any type of fans in the stands, as we would say. So that's going to have a, a further financial impact. And what we're seeing now is as a result of that financial impact, Major League Baseball, for the first time, has uh, essentially authorized its teams to consider furloughs or layoffs for some of the staff who are not unionized and thus essentially not players. Uh, there's been some discussion, despite an initial agreement between the Players Association and Major League Baseball, with regard to the first two months of the year, uh, where Major League Baseball owners guaranteed a certain amount of money to provide a percentage of salary for these players. Now there's talking about, hey, if we go back to work here, and whenever we go back, we need further reductions in the, in the contractual uh, rates that these players have already agreed to. So you're seeing a lot of dynamics literally on a day-by-day basis. And as we mentioned earlier, Darren, before we were recording this, uh, 
you know, it appears as though now minor league baseball is, you know, a couple of weeks ago or a month or two ago was vehemently opposed to the lowering of potential minor league franchises. Now it appears that as of this morning, and again, I haven't confirmed it, and I don't know if you have, uh, appears as though there might be some acceptance of this reduction in the number of minor league franchises. Um, and one other part of the major league deal, which a lot of people are talking about, is the reduction in the number of draft rounds that we're going to see in the amateur draft, which has now been delayed from a typical June date. Uh, we might have as few as five rounds in that draft, and then any players who are not specifically drafted in those five rounds would only be eligible to receive a $20,000 signing bonus as a free agent. So, Again, all these are being created as a result of the financial impact uh, from the coronavirus. Thanks for bringing up the, um, the topic of the fact that minor league baseball may be reducing the number of affiliated teams from 160 to 120. And that's something, as you mentioned, day to day, we're seeing new updates. That's something that was reported earlier today, only through sources not confirmed. And it's, it's believed that it's a conversation that will occur tomorrow on April 22nd. And so we may just in 24 hours have some sort of guidance on that issue. But, I, you know, from your experience representing individual players as an agent to now doing some more work on the team side, and for anyone who's listening and doesn't know, Greg has a very robust practice representing um, MLB franchises and salary arbitration. And if teams go back to playing in 2020 or, or we start the MLB season at all in 2020 and it's without fans. From your perspective, what kind of economic impact would that have on the teams and perhaps flowing through to the players if that particular bucket of revenue is gone, that being the ticket sales, the concessions, the parking, et cetera? And, and would we see sponsors even try to claw back some money that they've provided if there's no eyeballs in the fans, in the seats. You know, Darren, it's interesting you say with the clawback, it's something you and I have uh, both talked about and written about a little bit, which of course is the classic force majeure clause and whether or not those would be applicable in this instance and depending upon how those clauses were specifically drafted, that becomes a, a potential litigation in and of itself. You know, I think the one difference that we would be experiencing with sports, uh, which might be different than other areas, for example, event management, things like that. For the most part, sports and the people who are spending money in sports, those teams, those leagues, and those individual entities do have an ongoing relationship for the most part that they want to continue. Um, so there might be a little bit more open-mindedness than perhaps some of our other clients that we deal with who are less open-minded and more hey, this is one event and I don't want to pay for it, or this is only one event and I want to make sure they pay for it. On the professional sports and even the collegiate side, there's going to be obviously impact. Uh, you know, if you lose ticket revenue, you lose fans in the stands and you lose that per capita uh, spending, whether it be for hot dogs and soda or whether it's for T-shirts and, and, and other uh, various amounts of memorabilia, uh, there's going to be a direct impact. So how does that direct impact Come back. Obviously, you might see uh, teams being a little bit tighter when it comes to free agency spending. And again, that opens up another Pandora's box potentially. As you know, historically, we have had some specific issues going back, uh, you know, decades uh, where there has been some collusion allegations. And will that certainly come up next spring? I mean, one of the concessions in the agreement that was reached between Major League Baseball and the Players Association uh, just a short time ago was to award the players full service time for this year. 
which essentially means that a player who might need an extra year of service or a part of your service to become arbitration eligible or to become a free agent before the 2021 season would now have that service time awarded to them even if they don't play. But what does that mean? What's the market going to be like? If I'm a free agent all of a sudden and there's been no revenue and no games with fans in the stands, does that mean the teams that would be potential suitors for free agents are going to be offering considerably less amount of gross dollars in terms of length of contract and overall financial rewards? Or is it just being even an arbitration category? Uh, obviously, some concessions are going to have to be made there because if a player gets an extra year of service and instead of being four plus is now five plus, but his statistics have not been modified in any way because he hasn't played. So therefore, is the comparable analysis going to be with a five plus player, even though the player we're talking about who got awarded the extra time doesn't have that you know, experience in the, in the at-bats and the production that would go and coincide typically with a five plus player. So therefore, an arbitration seeking a five-plus typical salary might not be possible unless there's some, some concessions that are reached between the Players Association and ownership with how to handle this additional year of service and the lack of statistical data to support that extra year. That's, so a, that's really interesting, um, you know, because the service time component of the deal was a very important concession by uh, Major League Baseball to the players. And certainly the current players were willing to forfeit some of the benefits that prospective future members of the union would receive by way of reducing you know, the number of draft rounds, reducing the guarantees on signing bonuses, or at least deferring payments and whatnot. But it's really interesting to think that arbitra salary arbitration, which you've focused on for over a decade, whether on the player side or now on the team side, would be altered as well. And, and for anyone who's listening and doesn't know, individuals in, in professional baseball uh, have the opportunity to go to salary arbitration if it's not settled in advance uh, on a year-to-year -year basis. And, and it's after three years of service time, or if the individual classifies as a super two, if he has an exceptional amount of service time within the first two years, and can go year after year. But the distinction, at least in my mind, always has been when you go to salary arbitration, you're negotiating and trying to persuade the team of arbitrators uh, that a certain salary should be provided to you or not provided if you're on the team side based on past performance, as opposed to free agency, where really it, you're, you're using a predictive model and you're essentially trying to value the player outward years going forward. And, and you're looking at their projections as opposed to what they've done in the past. And I guess coronavirus would throw a huge wrench in that, as you mentioned, if, if an entire year wasn't played out, yet the individual did receive that year of service time. Yeah, it's really going to be interesting to see how that's addressed, because I'm sure both parties being as bright and capable as they are on the union side, as well as they are on the management side, uh, have to anticipate that issue. Now, obviously, at the time they reached this agreement, I don't think, and let's keep our fingers crossed, it doesn't come to fruition, but uh, you know, the, the complete cancellation of the season would really impact that, and even, frankly, a half a season. Because if you have a half a season of statistical data and you match that up with a full season of service time, and then, again, as you mentioned, uh, Darren, your arbitration is based upon a comparable analysis. So you're looking to players who have essentially played a year or two or three ahead of you, and then you compare your statistical achievements with them, 
to either establish that you need to be compensated similarly to them or in excess of what those players have historically gotten. So now the compo the, that comparable analysis would certainly be skewed based upon the statistical data that might only be half or a quarter or whatever the number of games we play, whether it's 90 or 100, instead of a full 162-game season. And the crucial part, as I've said before, is that you would now have a 162 or a full season of service time. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how the parties figure that one out going forward. All right, let's switch gears. I know a topic that you and I have been following and covering for quite some time is name, image, and likeness in college sports. And we may have differing positions on it. We'll get to that shortly. But again, coronavirus has sort of thrown a wrench into the progress of many states that were seeking to allow college athletes within their borders to exploit their names, images, and likenesses for commercial gain. We had California come out first with its legislation, um, improperly titled, but eventually modified because people were initially confused as to whether or not that meant that college athletes would be salaried employees. They will not. But the crux of the issue is, as I mentioned, allowing them to earn money off of their names, images, and likenesses. That legislation in California was passed, signed by the governor with LeBron James in attendance, and would be effective in 2023. Then my state of Florida also passed similar legislation that is waiting on the governor's desk, ultimately is believed it will be signed. Uh, but again, COVID-19 hit and he hasn't gotten around to it. That would allow college athletes to exploit name, image, and likeness starting in 2021. So two years prior to California. And then there are many states that were debating legislation on the issue. Um, either their sessions have expired or it's something that they just will pick up after coronavirus has passed. What's your position on everything that's happened with regard to name, image, and likeness on the college sports front thus far? I think you have to take a historic look at it first. I mean, when you think back probably a little bit more than a year or so ago, and I'm getting a little bit of a time warp with everything that's been going on recently, but the thought of any of these name, image, and likeness issues, whether they be on a legislative basis from a state perspective, or even now as you know, the, the NCAA with its working uh, committee led by Gene Smith and Val Ackerman taking the time, and they are taking the time, and I think people should respect and appreciate the effort they're putting in to try and come up with some proposals. Um, it's fascinating to think that this has become such a hot issue. And the thing that is really fascinating to me, and, and again, you don't give yourself any credit, but you've been so instrumental in getting that Florida legislation passed and working so closely with the legislators in that state to make sure there are some certain provisions contained in that proposed law, which are a little bit different than the California law and a number of other state proposals. But to think that we would have such an issue that would lead to such bipartisan support. And I think that's the one thing that the NCA and others have taken notice of. This has not been a polarizing issue in the sense that only Republicans support it, only Democrats support it, or whatever it might be. It appears in most states, and again, there's a few exceptions, but in most states, uh, this proposed legislation has really received bipartisan support. And not to criticize any legislators, but I think a lot of legislators have jumped on board because it has become such a hot button of political attention, and they want to be part of it. And I know there's a number of former athletes, like in New Jersey, there's a former college baseball player who's proposing the legislation uh, in other states as well. Um, but the reality is, I think everyone's looking at this huge amount of money that the NCA prior to this year 
has been generating and the schools have allegedly been generating and believe that the student athletes should have a chance to participate in it. And I think the one misnomer, and I don't think you and I disagree about this, but I think there are a number of schools that are not making the quote unquote millions of dollars uh, that some of the power five schools have been making. Some schools uh, you know, have to support their athletic programs through the main university funds. Um, but at the end of the day, there needs to be some acknowledgement. And I think that's where we're headed. And I frankly think from the rumors I've been hearing over the last 24 to 48 hours, that the NCA is going to propose addressing these issues now, which would essentially allow a student athlete to go out and market themselves and be able to secure opportunities for their name, image, and likeness. Um, without any rebuff from the NCAA or any elimination of scholarships. Now, the one thing that you and I have both talked about early on that not many other people acknowledge or thought about, which I think is going to be an interesting aspect of this, is the, the lack of or the, the inability of the student athlete, no matter what's proposed, to use the university name, the university trademark, or any other things associated with the university as part of this name, image, and likeness rights that they might be able to have. That's right. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic because if I'm a student athlete, am I a student athlete who's big enough for a company to just say, hey, I want to have Darren Heitner endorse my product or my apparel or whatever it might be? Or do I need Darren Heitner, star quarterback at the University of Florida? And if I need both of those, then there might not be an opportunity for Darren Heitner to be able to secure the deal. The other interesting component, which I'm interested to see how it plays out, and I know the, the initial legislation that was proposed in California, there was a lot of thought about that this would give female athletes a tremendous opportunity when they don't have professional sports league for the most part to go on to to make additional revenue as a result of their sport. I think there's a certain level of excitement that female student athletes, whether it be volleyball players or softball players or whatever they might be, basketball players, would have a chance to participate and have additional revenue come to them while undergraduates through the name, image, and likeness rights. So again, a lot of moving parts right now, but I think the overall review of this is thanks to people like you and others around the country, there's been a definite push toward more and more state legislation, which is, I believe, led to a lot of pressure on the NCAA. The challenge the NCAA faces, and even with great leaders like Gene Smith and, and Val spearheading this, is they're a large group. You know, you're talking over a thousand schools. So again, people want them to move at warp speed, and I don't think they're made to go at warp speed. But I do think what's happening now is they had promised they'd have some reports back and some suggestions from the Division One to the Division One Legislative Council, uh, which I think are starting to happen. And I think we're going to see some really uh, amazing proposals that I think you never would have seen or even been considered uh, not too long ago. I have to ask because you teased it. What what did you hear in the past 24 to 48 hours? And you know, with regard to this plan that you expect the NCAA to ultimately propose. What do you think the timetable is? When will, well, when will we get to the other thing? issue? That's a good point, Darren. You know, if there's discussions and proposals, is this the kind of thing that can be passed and implemented? Probably not before the 2020-2021 school year. It might not be able to take impact or effect until the following school year. Uh, and again, that coincides with the law you work so hard on. Uh, when the governor signs it, which is a July 1, 2021 effective date. So I think, and I don't think there'll be any states that enact legislation that's going to be sooner than that. So I think whether it's by state legislation, whether it's federal legislation, which we haven't talked about, which has been rumored, a number of federal legislators are sort of 
you know, teasing that idea that they're going to get involved. And even the NCA itself has potentially opened the door for some federal intervention in their assistance. I realistically think we're not going to see anything before sometime in uh, either early to mid-2021 uh, in terms of the effectiveness of any legislation or any changes um, with regard to NCA bylaws. But if the NCA changes its position with, with regard to its bylaws on this subject, is there really a need for the federal government to intervene further? I think if, you know, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head there, and I think that might be one of the reasons, you know, let's be honest, you know, the, the NCA has really pushed and, and tried not to have the NCA come in and do anything from a legislative perspective to impact their day-to-day -day operations. And I think they, they might be, and I have no basis for this except from our experience in life, they might be thinking, wait, do we really want the NCA to come in here? I want the federal government to come in here because once we open that Pandora's box, we don't know what else they're going to want to regulate and get involved with. Right. Um, so, and I also think there's just a reaction uh, and a realistic reaction that when you see 20, 25, probably 30 states by the end of this, uh, end of this year, once legislative sessions get back to more normality, um, can we even exist with having so many different state laws which have different tweaks and different challenges that each one faces, especially when you have conferences that are multi-state conferences? So can you have a conference survive that's going to have, for example, 12 members, but you're going to have four different states and potentially four different state legislation, pieces of legislation that are going to control those schools? And how do we as a conference operate? And how do we as an NCA operate under those parameters? And I think that's another driving force uh, behind a lot of this movement that we're going to see simply because the reality is such that we can't move forward by having 20 or 25 or 30 different state laws. And again, do we want the federal government to get involved in this? And frankly, will they get involved in it despite initial overtures that they would? So I think the NCA is sort of regrouping a little bit and saying, hey, let's sort of take the bull by the horns here and maybe we can take control of our own destiny by coming up with rules and regulations. Uh, that we like and we believe in and then to a certain degree protect the sanctity of what they call the amateur model. I think that's a very, very sound point, having disparity, even nuances between the legislation state to state. And I can tell you, in the process of drafting the legislation and revising it in the state of Florida, uh, we were talking quite a bit and, and still do about the fact that Look, if, if nothing happens, we plan to move forward with an effective date of July 2021. But the hope, the true hope, is that the NCAA or the federal government can take what we've done, use it as a template, and essentially obviate the need for us to do this on a state-by-state -state basis and do it across the country instead. Now, the federal government when we first started debating our legislation was preoccupied with impeachment. And then it became preoccupied obviously with coronavirus and now with PPP and funding small businesses and so on and so forth. So understandably, it's not a, uh, a priority for the federal government. And I don't know that it will be prior to our effective date in, uh, in Florida, July, 2021. So I guess the hope is that the NCA will do something. And I think based on your commentary, it's actually a bit promising in April of 20. You know, I think, I think people are going to be, and again, whatever is introduced, proposed, discussed at this juncture um, is still subject to a lot of review, challenges, comments, and I don't think it'll reflect where we're going to end up. 
But I think if the NCA makes enough of an initial movement to get the attention of some state legislators and people like you who, who work so hard on state legislation, it might, you know, maybe everyone can all of a sudden build a bridge here. Let's figure out how we can do this together. And perhaps, you know, between the state legislators and state legislation that's been introduced, as well as the states that have passed legislation, which is now California and Colorado, and you guys are out on the impetus of doing it shortly. Um, maybe there's a way that this can all come together and we can figure something out. Uh, and the NCA, again, I don't think is really focused right now. We want to have more litigation and, you know, running into court to try and get some type of injunctive relief to prevent the effectiveness of some of these state legislators acts um, to protect the NCA. I don't think that's the procedure they want to go forward with. So I do think we're going to be surprised and very pleased, I think, at least with the initial uh, thought process of where they want to head with this. And whether or not how far they ultimately get when it's voted upon, that's another story. But I do think, you know, Val and Jean and all their efforts with their committee members uh, really deserve a lot of credit because they're working tirelessly to try and come up with some solution, um, you know, which is, you know, almost running backwards in a lot of ways because they're trying to catch up with something that they never instituted themselves uh, but they're reacting to a lot of things that are going on around them and they have to catch up pretty quickly well if the nca hasn't tapped you yet as an advisor on this particular issue i don't know what they're waiting for uh, <laughs> um, nice i uh I, I appreciate your time greg so much i want to wrap up with a final question that isn't necessarily timely, but I think that it's always relevant, especially for a lot of people who are listening to this particular podcast. And you've seen it from both sides. Very few people have as both a, a lawyer and an agent. And I, I think we both know I, I did the same thing. I started my career trying to be an agent. And after about four years of very hard work, sleepless nights, etc., I decided to pivot to being a full-time lawyer. If you can just briefly uh, explain what caused you to shift from being a very successful agent to now being a very successful lawyer, and maybe you know, some of your experiences along the way, and, and what drove you to where you are. You know, that's a great question, it's, and it's one, Darren, that I, I thought about for a long time. Uh, you know, I had a great run, I used that expression. Um, as an agent, I enjoyed every minute of it. I had the good fortune to work, as you mentioned, with a gentleman by the name of Bob Wolf, um, who had really been a, you know, a, a, a kind of a trendsetter, I'll use that expression, in the agent industry before it became such a socially acceptable uh, role and career. And I got a chance to work with him and learn from him. And ultimately, with his untimely passing, I got a chance to even uh, serve as the head of his company and, and representing his needs and his family's interests as owners of that company. You know, and I did that for, for the better part of 20 plus years uh, with there and a couple other agencies and had a great run. As I said, I was very fortunate to have some great clients over the years and work with them. But sometimes, you know, you're looking at, you're, you're looking out and, and, and always uh, thinking about new challenges. And the law firm that I started with was, was the law firm I work for now by the name of Jackson Lewis. And I initially left Jackson Lewis to pursue my dream of working in sports. And back then, there weren't a lot of teams that had, you know, a deep roster of attorneys as general counsel or associate counsel or things like that. You really had to be an agent. And I uh, had the good fortune, as I said, of being uh, asked to join Bob Wolf's organization. And then, you know, down the road, you know, Jackson Lewis had picked up the phone. And I had always stayed friendly with the leaders of the firm and asked me about potentially coming back to the firm to starting a sports practice, help them start a sports practice. 
and you know the entrepreneurial aspect of all people and you're, you're a great example of an entrepreneur um, sort of kicked in and it was an opportunity to go back with some people who I had a great deal of respect for and a firm that I had a great deal of respect for uh, it might have been a little crazy uh, because again here I was giving up a, a, an agent practice um, but a lot of my athletes were nearing the end or had near the end in terms of my star athletes. So the timing I just thought was kind of perfect. And uh, again, I felt as though let's give it a shot from an entrepreneurial perspective. And we've been very fortunate. Uh, I've gotten a great deal of support from my firm as we've tried to build our practice. And I think we've been very fortunate to, to be able to add some really good management clients and be able to assist them. And frankly, over the last 10 years, if anyone would have told me that there'd be such a an enormous expansion in sports law work. And I always use the expression, there's no such thing as sports law, but you know what I mean. In law issues relating to sports, whether they be wage and hour issues, whether they be OSHA issues, whether they be uh, labor issues, whatever they might be, it's been amazing to see the increase in the number of uh, legal issues that we've all had to deal with from, from, from sports. Uh, so it's been a great and a lot of fun uh, to sort of now explore that area and build that area of my practice in addition to my years as an agent. Greg, thanks again for taking the time today. Keep holding it down on the West Coast. Stay safe. I should tell everybody, I think the last time you and I saw each other was at a conference at Hofstra Law where we yes. talked about name, image, and likeness. And that was well before the bill was, I think, even put on the House floor in Florida. I think. It was I know it was beginning because you were, you were able to fill people in a little bit. And you guys did such a great job of moving it through and getting support so quickly. And now we just got to get your governor to come back to the office and put his pen to paper. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, understandably, he's, he's quite a distracted right now. So, um, well, again, thanks so much, Greg, and be well. Thank you, Darren, for the time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of How to Play the Game. I think this one was the best one yet. Greg was a fantastic guest, and I hope we have him again on the show soon. Again, you can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, anywhere where you receive your podcasts. And as always, please share it with others. And if you are so kind, rate us as high as possible. Till next time, stay safe.